welcome back to another episode of The American Attic, where we uncover historical insights through hindsight. Presented by the Sacramento Historical Society and hosted by Eric Swigert, join us as we uncover the past through expert-led, dialogue-driven discoveries of California history and beyond. In this episode of The American Attic, I sit down with veteran journalist and the recently named California opinion editor for the Sacramento Bee. With well over 30 years of journalism experience, this award-winning guest provides a first-hand look at some of the changes you've seen in journalism in recent decades, as well as some hot takes on the current media landscape. His columns have won awards and acclaim across the board and continue to stimulate vigorous debate and discussion amongst Californians. Specific topics in this episode include the apparent rise of media skepticism, the impact of the internet and social media on journalism, and an abundance of real-life examples of what actually goes on in a California newsroom, all helping to give you a glimpse of how those headlines you encounter are put together. So without further ado, please enjoy this trip up to the American attic with one of NorCal's leading journalists, Mr. Marcos Bretone. Marcos can be found on Twitter at Marcos Bretone, where he regularly shares on topics relevant to many Californians. Okay, and we can go ahead and and dive right into it. Um, So again, Marcos, thank you for taking the time today. Thanks for for joining us on the Sacramento Historical Society podcast. I think a place place that we can start is, is, could you describe, and a lot of our listeners are not familiar with journalism, they don't have a background in it, anything close to what you have. So in your own words, how would you describe what it is that you do on a day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year basis? Well, I'm a traditional newspaper journalist as it's been defined for the last century, really. Um, I work for a general interest publication, in this case, the Sacramento Bee. Uh, My publication has roots in Sacramento that go back to the founding of Sacramento. The city, I think, is only seven or eight years older than the the newspaper itself. Um, The owners of the newspaper were very influential in the development of the city, the promotion of the city. And so when I joined the Sacramento Bee at the end, the tail end of 1989, uh, it was located at 21st and Q Street uh, in Midtown Sacramento. And had been in that spot since the early 1950s and had been located in other locations around town before that, but had been in Midtown since the early 50s. and, um, you know, we were one of the largest employers uh, in the area. Uh, the B uh, was the most sought after an advertising venue. And, and so it, it really carried the weight of being an active community participant in Sacramento. And so, so I, I played by the rules of, of journalism as they've been defined for about the last, as I said, for the last century, where we, um, uh, it's our job to um, to be the voice of the community, to give people a sense of place, writing articles about interesting people or, or issues. Uh, and there's also, um, there's also an accountability uh, portion of that to where our reporters and our opinion journalists are are duty bound to uh, hold the powerful accountable when necessary. So I came up through the ranks in that culture. Um, and, um, and and Marcos, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but your your current role is opinion editor, correct? For Sacramento I'm, Bee? Yes, I'm the opinion editor now. Uh, it was a long circuitous journey to get there, but I'm the opinion editor now. This job that I have goes back to the Gold Rush days, um, where the uh, the opinion editor uh, is presides over an editorial board 
And the board is the editorial voice of the newspaper. People confuse this. Mm-hmm. So there's the news side of the operation. When we were at our old building, the news side was on the second floor. And the editorial board was on the third floor. So there's separate floors, separate organizational structures. Uh, and they do not consult with each other in any way. There's, there's sort of a figurative firewall between the two. That continues to this day. Uh, and the editorial board is the, is the entity that states opinions. And so that's, that's what we do. And, and what is the, the purpose of that, that firewall, as you say, to keep those, those areas of the business separate? What's the reasoning behind that? So the reasoning for that is the news reporters are, are reporting the news straight. And so they present facts to readers. And then the readers decide for themselves. The opinion side states opinions, uh, and it takes positions on on the important issues of the day, criticizes or praises mm-hmm. the, uh, powerful people or politicians. Uh, and you want to have the two separate. You want to have the two operating independently of each other. For many years, I was a news reporter. I had no idea what would be in the editorial pages until I picked up the paper and read it myself. And that's the way wow. it's Wow. Uh, so you started on, and that, did you say that was the third floor of the B? So the editorial board was on the third floor. I was, I, when, when I was in the newsroom, I was on the second floor. I was on the news side. I was a news side reporter. Uh, you know, I covered SMUD at one point, you know, 30 plus years ago. And then uh, I took a career detour and I, I was a first a sports reporter and then a sports columnist. But I always knew I would go back to news. And the job that I had before the job I have now Mm -hmm. was as the news columnist. And so uh, most major newspapers would have one person within the news ranks who would write opinion. And that is the news columnist. Great job. Uh, I love that job. I had that job for 14 years. And so but I was on the news side. Uh, But when the editorial page editor job came open last year, I applied for it and got it. And then I... I moved over to this side full time. So if we were in the old building, uh-huh. now I'd be on the third floor. I would have moved my stuff up from the second floor to the third floor. We're Got in this it. beautiful new building about nine blocks from where we used to be. And I'm, we're on one side of the building and the new side are on the other side. Nice. Yeah, I actually, I used to live across from the B, from the press, the printing press area on 23rd, yes. 23rd Street. And I was, I was always woken up early in the morning by the trucks leaving to go do the round. So... Special special history of that of that site for sure. Um, so for what you're doing today or what you're doing nowadays in this new role, um, is that are you still able to uh, do much opinion expressing, or is it more kind of a management related role? Well, it's a good question because <clears throat> so I've almost been doing this job for a year, and I have I do not write as often as I did before. When my whole focus was writing, and I would write two or three or four pieces a week. That has, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure my bosses would love it if I would write more. And I'm moving in that direction. But mm-hmm. uh, I have, I have uh, uh, seven people under me here in Sacramento. I'm also responsible for our opinion colleagues in our sister papers in Fresno, Modesto, and San Luis Obispo. So I oversee the entire California opinion team, which is why the, the title is California Opinion Editor. Back in the old days, the old days being only about 10 or 15 years ago, uh-huh. uh, this job was called the editorial page editor, and you were only responsible for the editorial page of the Sacramento Bee. But now I'm all the California opinion editors are, are under me, and, and I'm, in, I'm in contact with them. I mean, most of my focus is, is still in Sacramento, but, but I do have responsibilities beyond Sacramento. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite, quite a reach all the way down to, you said, San Luis Obispo. Yeah, we have uh, the, the Modesto Bee, the Fresno Bee, and the San Luis Obispo Tribune are all part of McClatchy. Yeah. There are 30 properties in all across the country, uh, and uh, those are the ones in California. And so all the opinion content I'm responsible for. Yeah, I, I appreciate the background because it, it it is something that even as a media consumer, and I, I like to think I'm a somewhat sophisticated media consumer, there's still so much on the back end that I don't understand about how a, you know, how a paper gets to my doorstep or on my computer or something like that. So 
Definitely appreciate it. And I, and I did want to ask before we dive into kind of some some larger um, patterns in journalism when you were getting started, how did you get, how did you, Marcus Bertone, get started in journalism? So I know you you grew up in San Jose and you uh, that's where you got a degree, I believe, in journalism from San Jose State, but what, yeah. what, what drew you to the field? So uh, I, I was coming up uh, in, the, uh, in the early 80s, which was just within the decade of Watergate. Uh, and so when I was in high school, all the president's men came out uh, sure. about, about the Washington Post uh, investigative examination of the Watergate scandal that contributed to the ultimate um, resignation of a sitting president, Richard Nixon. So all that seemed really interesting to me. And there was a real kind of um, renaissance of print journalism. And there were also, you know, when I was a young man, um, back when they used to have tower books, you know, I would go to the tower bookstore and I would, I didn't have any money at that time, but I would read you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, I would read yeah. Rolling Stone magazine. And, and I really became infatuated with the idea of, of doing this. And, um, uh, and then I really got the bug. Uh, I was a community college student at San Jose, San Jose City College. And our, uh, our advisor, Art Carey, was this great old newspaper guy who would mm-hmm. drink his coffee and stir his cream with a grease pencil, which I thought was kind of <laughs> disgusting, but that's what they did in the newsrooms back in those days. And so I really got the bug then. San Jose State uh, has a wonderful journalism program that dates back to the 30s. Uh, we're very proud of our program and a lot of tremendous journalists have come out of there. Uh, and that's where I really kind of took my first baby steps uh, in the business. And, you know, you learn how to write and report and um, uh, you learn about media law and about libel because you didn't want to libel anybody in print. And you learn about ethics um, and corroborating stories before you print them and all these fundamental principles that I still follow now. Um, uh, now, there's a whole media ecosystem that exists now that plays by different rules. So that's why when people say, well, the media, my response is, well, what media are you talking about? Because even here in Sacramento, there are there are outlets that don't play by the same rules that I play by. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so I really, uh, I came up in that culture of, of, um, of you know, the post-Watergate culture and where, where you know, you had TV shows like Lou Grant. It was, I was about a TV station, but there were all these, those, you know, it, was, it became really cool to be a journalist. And sure. frankly, um, it was what, uh, even though I mean, nobody believes me when I say this now, but I was painfully shy when I was in high school and college. Nobody believes me now, but, but um, uh, it, the, uh, the prospect of asking people questions really helped draw me out of, of the shell that I was in at the time. And, mm-hmm. and I found that I really, I really enjoyed it and I really uh, relished it and uh, graduated from San Jose State. And I was an intern at the LA Times for a year, which was a great post-education, post-college education. I worked at the San Jose Mercury News, my hometown paper, in its heyday back in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And then I came to Sacramento thinking that it would be a two-year stop. And here I am. Uh-huh. 32 years later, the newspaper and the city um, took me in and, and, and they adopted me and I adopted them. Uh, this became the place that I ultimately chose. I could have gone to live and work in L.A. I could have gone to live and work in New York or Washington. I could have gone abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I fell in love with Sacramento and, and, and this institution that uh, I believe in so much that Every time I was thinking about leaving, they gave me a, a better reason to stay. So, sure. so here I am. That's that's awesome, and I feel like it's it's hard not to be inspired towards a journalism career by watching Robert Re- Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman do their thing, you know, and all the presidents. Man, I was inspired, and I don't even have the background that you have. So, yeah, no, great, uh, great film, and and I did want to ask too, kind of in this similar similar area. Were you attracted to a, a particular, and I'm 
I, I don't have the journalism jargon down, so feel free to correct me. Were you attract? Is it a beat having a particular beat that journalists have? Well, interestingly enough, I my initial ambition was to be a sports writer. I loved in those years, Sports Illustrated was really in its heyday, and mm-hmm. uh, and they were every week they'd have a beautiful example of long form journalism, and I would I would run home from school and get my copy of SI, and I would flip to the back and read the story. And, Fantastic writers, Frank De, the late Frank DeFord, Curry Kirkpatrick, and just legends, you know, and I love that. Um, but when I started doing journalism, I, I found that um, I gravitated more toward news as I switched to news. Uh, and, uh, and so my early career was just learning the craft because there is a craft of, mm-hmm. of, of you have to do, there's all kinds of different skill sets that you have to possess. You have to, First of all, you have to be curious. You have to like people, I think. You have to like the whole give and take. Um, you have to be resilient. You have to, and then there's this whole uh, craft of, of, of crafting a news story. It's much different from crafting an opinion piece. So, you you know, I spent the first several years of my career learning that and trying to master that. And, uh, and you know, at, at, uh, both at the LA Times and San Jose were great places to work and to learn. I was around just phenomenal journalists and just, I, I ate it up, you know, I lived it, breathed it. And um, so so the opportunity to come to Sacramento was, was a great one for where I was at that point in my life. And I met so many, I've met so many phenomenal journalists here in Sacramento who, who not only really believed in journalism, but loved Sacramento and, mm-hmm. and uh, and felt like what they did was was um, an important part of our community. And I think, you know, knowing what the media landscape is now, where you have several cities, including big cities, whose newspapers have been really depleted and demoralized, um, we're fortunate in Sacramento that we still have a, a high-functioning newspaper uh, Listen, without sounding immodest, if the Sacramento Bee is not holding people accountable in Sacramento, it ain't happening. It's not. With, with all due respect to my colleagues in, in, in television and radio, I'm sorry. It ain't happening if, if, if it's not happening with the Sacramento Bee. Uh, so so um, I'm proud of that. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of I was part of a generation of journalists that helped fully integrate the newsroom. And, and that also uh, kept it going uh, during very difficult times when our, our company was, was experiencing very difficult financial hardship. Got it. And, and I definitely want to dive deeper. A few moments ago, you mentioned um, how media consumption patterns and media production patterns have changed so much in, in the last few decades, especially with the internet. That's, you know, goes without saying. But before we dive into that, I did... Um, I did want to check on one thing as somebody who actually got a degree in the field and in the field that they ended up working in, how did that process go? Because as somebody who's a little bit earlier in their careers for myself, I have obviously my opinions of how I was trained academically in getting my degree and then the workplace hands-on experience practice. And do you have any thoughts on like which one of those you think prepared you the most? Well, so I, I'm, I feel my journalism school at San Jose State and San Jose City College, they uh, encouraged me, uh, filled me full of confidence, and, and, and then as, as I went step by step through both, both of those programs, they, they, they taught me uh, what was important, they taught me how to act, um, uh, and they taught me what to aspire to. Uh, and then the rest I learned when I left, and it was, uh, and it has been, and it continues to be in education. Um, you know, the world has changed several times since I came out of school, yeah. and um, and I'm listen. Uh, the the American newspaper industry lost a lot of people since 2008, and those of us who have stayed are the true believers. And 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 you know, we we've, we've been able to. I think we've been able to prove. Our value, um, because in the today's in today's world, you have to you have to bring value to in our case to readers. Mm-hmm. 
because they have a lot of other choices, right? So, so uh, when I was earlier in my career, and you know, newspapers were enjoying 30, 35% profit margins, it was easier to be kind of laissez-faire about the audience. We don't have that luxury anymore. So that's that's just one way that the world has changed. But so, but I felt like um, I felt like my training prepared me to be successful at an entry level, mm-hmm. and then and then and then they also imbued me with um, a belief that there was more than just the entry level, mm-hmm. and encouraged me to pursue that. And I did, and I have. Uh, and so, uh, so I, I'm one of the lucky ones. My my training, I think, prepared me for mm-hmm. a, a, a very satisfying <clears throat> life in journalism, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. Great. That's that is that is great news. Anybody who can claim that, you know, that's definitely a blessing. And I, I there's a couple, a few different ways we can go from that, um, and maybe we'll circle back around to to the discussion around training and things like that. But in this exploration of, of what the journalistic landscape looked like then when you were just getting started and now as well, you know, in the age before Google, um, you know, what did it look like to, um, what did research in particular look like when you were just getting started? For those of us that have no memory of that, you know, that, uh, that time, you know, what did the research process look like putting together a story, vetting sources, you know, what did that look like before, before the internet, before Google? Yeah. So it was, it was something radical called, you know, conversation. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I do feel, you know, working in a newsroom now with young people who are young enough to be my children. Uh, I do feel that weight of history that um, when I started at, at the Sacramento Bee, um, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. There was no Twitter, um, Facebook. Um, we had these big gigantic tubes on our desk that were just essentially word processors. And um, and people would lay out pages by with a with a, a piece of paper, a ruler, and a pencil. Uh, and they would, you know, and then you had you had this whole bank of of these really crusty old copy editors with the green visor, <laughs> sure. you know. And, yeah, uh, and they were really cranky if they would catch mistakes in yourself. Particularly if you were young, they would just rake you over the coals. Uh, and um, and then you had these uh, oh flinty old reporters, real characters who would uh, both take a young person like the person I was under their wing and maybe abuse them a little bit too. <laughs> um, uh, and I I lived all of that really you know, loud uh, co-workers, but who did pass on a lot of wisdom and knowledge. So so the word was passed by mouth back in those days. You know, I, I don't mean to sound like some Native American storyteller or whatever, okay. but, but that's the way the word was passed. And, you know, when we would search for, like when we were trying to find someone, they used to have like these cross, these gigantic, books with cross references to like addresses and stuff. And I don't remember finding anybody by using those things, but we used them anyway. Uh, and, you know, we used to have these Thomas guides, you know, there were these maps. Everyone, every journalist had a, a Thomas guide in his or her car. And you literally, when you're going someplace, you'd go through the Thomas guide and you would map out your routes before you left, you know, this is before, you know, you just GPS and you put your the address yeah. in your phone and your phone tells you where to go. Back then you had to use your, so there were a lot of missing freeway off-ramps <laughs> and whatnot. Um, uh, but, you know, we had the time back then because uh, we owned everything. We, mm-hmm. owned, we owned the advertising market. We owned... Um, the distrib- distrib- the distribution system. Yeah, we owned the time frame when we decided when a story was going to be a story. And again, um, you know, uh, we we didn't in, here in Sacramento. Once the once the rival Sacramento Union went away, 
in the early 90s, mm-hmm. we were unrivaled. Mm-hmm. We, we, and we controlled it. And that's how it was. You know, uh, we would decide. Mm-hmm. When uh, when things would would uh, would go to print, um, and there was a lot of confidence that went with that, uh, and all those I remember all those times. But it's much different now. It's in fact, it's not just much different now. It's completely different now. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I definitely want to to get there and and to describe how you know you were mentioning everything was owned, um, and and how the landscape looks different now. I definitely want to explore that. But but last question on kind of this early, early landscape, you know, this was obviously before the time of a lot of our listeners, definitely before my time, but were there, <laughs> were, were there particular um, journalists that you were inspired by? I think you mentioned a few teachers already that you had, but were there any particular journalists or reporters that you thought, you know, were really doing a good job out there and you, and you absorbed their work and tried to, tried to um, uh, mimic just a little bit? Yes. Uh, when I arrived, at the B, uh, this wonderful guy, uh, Dale Maharaj, uh, was an investigative reporter, really in the old style. Like, Dale didn't go to college. He had a high school degree, and he went into journalism and had newsprint blowing through his veins. And he worked with a photographer, amazing photographer, Michael Williamson. So the two of them were a team. And so I arrived in November of uh, 1989, and in April of 1990, Dale and Michael won the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction for a book that they did uh, based on reporting the event of the Sacramento Bee. So that was, that was here I was a young person. I'd only been here a few months and uh, that was a big moment for me. Um, so those two guys, uh, you know, Dale, uh, the last time I heard he was teaching journalism at Stanford and Michael works for the Washington Post. So they've continued writing and but so I, I would spend time with them and, and, uh, and I told them this, that there, there were, I felt like being with them was like going to graduate school from yeah. because I was learning how, I was learning how to pursue stories. I was learning to be aspirational to, to, uh, to really want to write about important things uh, and, and then figuring out how to do that. Uh, Cause not everybody gets that opportunity, you know? Sure. And, um, so that would, so those those guys were were really huge in my development. And then we had a guy um, who was a political writer at the time named Rick Rodriguez, who later went on to become our managing editor, our executive editor, and um, and he was he was a real mentor for me. Um, you know, uh, his family came from Mexico just as mine did, and you know, a little bit earlier I mentioned how the we really integrated the Bee newsroom in the early 90s, which sounds weird to say that now, but it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, the first people of color began arriving in the Bee newsroom in the 60s, but I really, I really don't think it was until like the early 90s where, where we kind of broke through um, and the newsroom became a lot more reflective of the Sacramento community. Mm-hmm. And so Rick, Rick was a big part of that. And so, um, you know, our executive editor, Gregory Fav, uh, he was in charge when I was hired. He was very influential for me. Uh, he really believed in, in the power and the good of journalism and, and insisted that we, um, that we conduct ourselves um, uh, by, 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 by swinging for the fences, by really trying to do important stories, but also remembering that we were part of a Sacramento community and worked for an institution that was um, and that was really uh, important in Sacramento and dated back to the founding of Sacramento. So all of those things became very important to me, even, even if I didn't realize it until maybe later, mm-hmm. uh, when I had the opportunity to go and, and chose to stay, that I felt like uh, that I was joining this continuum uh, of, of really phenomenal journalists uh, and that uh, I wanted to play my part in that. And I wanted to, to, uh, to, to honor that history and be part of all of that. And, uh, and I, 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 uh, I felt like those were the, like the most important people who I've met in my career. I met here. Yeah. Uh, 
So, so yeah, there, there, and there are many others, um, but, but those, those were the main ones. Yeah. Well, you, and using that, um, that foundation of, of um, not just journalists and reporters that were inspirations, but also just your training and background in, in the early years, you know, I, I did want to t- uh, take a chance to just explore some more contemporary uh, patterns in, in journalism and media consumption that that folks are observing now, even by virtue of them just being consumers, you know, consumers of the, of the end product. Um, but it does strike me, though, your comments about the bee in particular and how a good newspaper really is embedded in the community. My, my dad, my dad grew up here in Sacramento and he used to deliver Sacramento Bee newspapers along with his five other brothers uh, before school and, and just how it goes from that all the way to the work that you've been talking about and doing and, and beyond. Um, the impact of a good newspaper is, is impressive. But looking at some, maybe some more contemporary obstacles that folks who work in the media, anywhere in, in media, let alone print media, um, may encounter, what are your thoughts or what's your take on kind of the, some of the hostility shown in recent years, I would say, to folks in the media um, I'm first, you know, I feel like I did not hear about it and maybe I wasn't paying attention, but I didn't really hear about it before the election of Donald Trump or about 2016 is when I first noticed, noticed it, but there was always skepticism out there, some folks. And, and so kind of what's your read on that in the last, I don't know, decade or two. So, um, I've come to believe that criticizing your local newspaper is part of freedom of speech mm-hmm. and it's part of a relationship that people have with the newspaper that they don't have at the tv station they don't um and so i don't i don't fear that i don't i don't begrudge that it doesn't make me angry i, I have i have um i'm in touch with a lot of people who are very critical of me or critical of the institution i work for and i can't especially if I'm in the opinion space and I'm both writing and editing uh, pieces that take strong uh, editorial stances, I can't then turn around and be, you know, using the parlance of the far right. I can't be a snowflake myself. Uh-huh. Um, and so, uh, and I'm always preaching that to the people who work for me, that we can't be hypersensitive about this. And in some, in some instances, the, the, the static that we get is a is a an expression of caring about the institution. And listen, some of my most loyal readers are are feel differently ideologically about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I, and I only think that I only think that it gets corrosive when when um, when people stop believing in the idea that you know, that we can agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. Um, And that happens now. But look, I, um, I could tell you back in the 90s, there were, you know, plenty of people who had really strong feelings about the B were, you know, we're sort of we're a bedrock institution in in Sacramento. And so people are going to feel the way they feel. And having read about the history of the B, the B faced real existential Threats in the early 20th century. At one point, there was a, a, a cabal of big businesses in Sacramento that tried to boycott the paper. And mm-hmm. you know, the original C.K. McClatchy really stood up to that. And when I read that, we were going through our own challenges, financial challenges, after the the big economic crash of 2008. And it really, it really uh, made me kind of stand up and stop whining about mm-hmm. things that. That this institution has faced greater greater threats than than we currently face, and that we need to we we can't shy away from that challenge. So so there are people. Listen, there are people who who are followers of former President Trump who believe the way they believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are politicians in Sacramento, yeah. a few of them who chose not to meet with our editorial board. You know, and then they took to Twitter and, you know, they were biased or whatever. And all, all I was left with was, was with the, the platform to mock them and print yeah. for being chicken, which I did. 
Yeah. Uh, which I, and I, I, I do, I, I do that to Democrats uh, yeah. as well. Listen, um, uh, Anthony Rendon, the speaker of the assembly, mm-hmm. I don't know whether it was him or a staff didn't want to meet with the editorial board because of me, mm-hmm. uh, because they were, they were upset about something I've written. It's in the, it's on the website today. I, I wrote it on the, the website today. It's going to be yeah. in the Sunday paper. Yeah. You make fun of them for doing that. And that's, that's, you know, you want to play that way, then we're going to play that way. So, so I think it's all, I think people do forget that this kind of back and forth and, and getting ghosted by politicians, that's not new. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now there are dangers, um, but I think it's like a lot of my TV colleagues now, like in the Bay area, they're getting robbed at gunpoint. Mm-hmm. That is new. Wow. But I, I don't know if that's ideological. Um, yeah. That, but there, there are certainly ideological challenges um, that we face now in the wake of Trump. It, but yeah, we need to face it. and and maybe um, maybe it's and maybe it's not even something that's associated with a particular administration, but just the the rising skepticism and you you know the buzzwords being alternative facts, fake news, you know some of these things we hear about is does that. And the way that media consumption patterns have shifted dramatically in the last 20 years, you know, is that something that, you know, worries you at all, keeps you up at night? Or, or is it just like you were saying, is it just a continuation of processes and, and things that go back to, you know, the 20th century? Well, you know, what keeps me up at night really has nothing to do with ideology. And I, I always um, tell people that, you know, I, some of my friends on the far right will say, well, you guys are... In, in more difficult financial trouble because you're too liberal. Mm-hmm. And my response is, you know, Pat, that's really just not true. It's just factually not true. Mm-hmm. The issues that we've had in the newspaper industry, and I think all the media have felt this, um, in book publishing, certainly, magazine yeah. publishing, is um, with, with the rise of social media uh, and the... And, uh, the avail the accessible the accessibility to the internet. Um, our business model was decimated. Um, you know, earlier I mentioned how we owned everything. You know, we owned the classified ad- advertising, we owned the display advertising. So what happens? So uh, Craigslist took yeah. classified away. My man, that was a lot of money that went out the wow. door. Uh, and you know the. The, the, the car makers and the home builders used to take these gigantic full-page ads. That was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. A lot of that went away. Um, and then you had, you had major department stores that were major advertisers with us. Yeah. Well, they have their own website. They communicate with their own customers. And wow. not to say they don't advertise with us, but they advertise with us less than they used to. Sure. So, 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 it sounds sexy to believe that our, our issues are related to ideology, mm-hmm. but what really happened to us in the early 2000s was that a technical revolution occurred mm-hmm. and publishing, not just the newspaper industry, publishing was too slow to see it, mm-hmm. to react to it. Uh, and then by the time that publishing did react, a lot of that money had gone out the door. And so now, like particularly if you're in newspaper publishing, unless you work at the New York Times, unless you work at the Washington Post, unless you work at the Wall Street Journal, the rest of us are all in a fight. Yeah. You know, we're all in a fight to, to rebuild a new business model on the fly, essentially, uh, to replace the one that had existed for a century before mm. that. And, um, so we are, and we're, we're doing that. We're working toward that. But even like the New York Times has a philanthropic um, uh, element to it because, mm-hmm. you know, the old way of, of making money, a lot of that has gone away. Uh, so that's what it is. Yeah. I, I, again, I'm repeating myself. I know it sounds sexy to say that it's ideology that has gotten us in trouble, but it's really business, yeah. and, and I think that I think even a lot of journalists forgot that at the end of the day, journalism is a business, and mm-hmm. and depends on the patronage 
of its customers. Yeah. Uh, and so we're in that fight. Yeah. I uh, I actually work for an advertising firm here in here in Sacramento. So I'm I I've I've been following the the uh, some of these discussions very closely recently. Um, but no, it's it it seems like such a collision of so many things. Technology, business, as you said. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I know as a as a media consumer myself, um, you know, it's you you know what you know, but you don't know what's happening behind the scenes. And and sometimes it's helpful to get a get some insights there. You know, I think before we uh before we go back um to to because I want to end with some questions about you again and about your background and your your commitment to the community and things like that. Something I did want to ask is, you know, in an age when um, we touched on this a little bit already, the methods to consume media seem to have magnified considerably and expanded considerably. You know, we all have these devices in our pocket that allow us to, you know, tap into the internet anywhere at any time. You know, um, I did want to ask, are there, looking back at, at your career of 30, 30 plus years in the industry, are there any media consumption habits patterns or considerations you wish people would adopt, um, you know, as somebody who is responsible for taking an informed stand on local issues, statewide issues, particularly in, in um, for the Sacramento Bee, are there any things you wish folks did maybe differently as they consume, not just your media, but maybe media across the board? Well, so when I speak to groups, the question will invariably come up. Why don't you write more good news? <laughs> and my response is, we do put good news in there. But when people are reading it online, they don't read it. You know, they, they gravitate. When you're on your computer at work, when you're kind of surfing around, even at home too, you're surfing around, <clears throat> you're your eye goes toward the provocative, you know, the unusual. Um, so that's a reality. It doesn't make me angry. It's just a reality. And <clears throat> we have a we have a columnist who just started with us at the B, Melinda Henenberger. And <clears throat> on her first day on a job with us, she won the Pulitzer Prize. For columns that she had written the year before with, the, with our sister paper, the Kansas City Star. Wow. Okay, so she's a phenomenal columnist. So she works for me now. And um, so she wrote a beautiful column uh, about former city councilman Alan Warren, who told a story about how his father was killed by a drunk driver and that Alan had spent his life trying to forgive the people who were responsible for taking his father away from him. And the way that Melinda wrote it was so nuanced and so beautiful, mm -hmm. so life-affirming. It's, it's, it's the kind of column that newspaper columnists have written forever and should write. And we will continue to write. Mm -hmm. Now, did it get like a ton of readers? Not really. That's not her fault. It's yeah. not my fault. It's just, it's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, a piece about you know some guy who has picked up a half a million dollars in code violations from the city of Sacramento that exploded, you know. Huh. So those habits are in play, and a lot of those habits too are are out of the control of the person writing the piece, you know, on on. Uh, if you want to find it on Google, the algorithms within Google and within Facebook have a lot to say about which stories are displayed and how. So we spend a lot of time um, trying to crack that code. I spend a lot of time. And, and listen, um, you can see the, the whisker, the gray whiskers I have. Uh -huh. in November, I'm going to be 60. Um, there were people of my generation who just didn't want to spend time trying to crack that code. Yeah. And they left. They left the business. I do. Um, I, I do because um, uh, I think our, our mission is more important than ever. And, and we have to be able to 
respond to the now. And that's the way it is now. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and maybe this is, I hope this is not belaboring the point, and maybe this is a rephrasing of the same question, but I wanted to ask it, is do you have any advice for um, media consumers nowadays who would like, who, um, any advice for them to consume media differently in a more educated way, maybe, or in a more empowering way, or like, you know, using what's out there uh, fully, as fully as they could be? Any not, not, I wouldn't presume to tell people how they should spend their time. I will say, I always, I often get the funny email from somebody, why isn't the media covering this? And they send a link to one of our stories. <laughs> well, we clearly did cover it. We heard about it because we covered it. Now, you know, I, I'm always um, patient and courteous uh, mm-hmm. because, again, these folks are, are, either consumers or potential consumers. Yeah. But I do think that one of that one of the aspects of freedom is the freedom to take a free press for granted. And and then the way that you know some conservative outlets frame the narrative now is that we're enemy of the people or whatever. But yeah. I don't think that that most of the people who would criticize the media, would want to live in the alternative, Russia, Iran, uh, places like that. I I don't think that they would. I I do think that one of the things of of being free is to take it for granted, and I think that we do. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. I it's there's so much there right to the the role of a press in the united states not just in california and sacramento but there is a lot there a lot of history which uh which maybe we'll get a chance to dive into on a a later episode but just a a couple of rapid fire questions and then i think uh i think we can we can wrap it up um so i was i was reading an interview you gave to sacramento magazine way back when (laughs) In 2007, oh it's still up there. It's still, oh, there. and I oh found it on Google. Oh my god! <laughs> um, and you cited in that interview that the most exciting topic you've ever covered was when the Kings made Western Conference Finals. And I wanted to follow up over ten years later and say, has that changed? Later. Yeah, has that has that changed at all? Uh, the most exciting topic covered. It, it has changed. Uh, <laughs> I was. Uh, I would say. I would say that um, you know, covering the times that we're in now, um, you know, the rise of Trump, the the threats to our democracy are far more important and exhilarating than that. Than the the conference finals was a really fun experience. For me, it was 20 years ago. It was 20 years ago, basically like last week was the anniversary of that time. And this was just before social media. Okay, so um, so people were consuming our our newspaper and the LA Times and yeah. um, uh, and the, the two communities were really engaged in it and it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really enjoyed it, but but um, before too long, I was back in news, and I would say that the last you know 15 years of the technological revolution and the way we responded to it, and um, and our our um, our continued struggle with with equality in California and. Um, uh, creating communities where young people can't afford to live. Uh, I think that those are far more important, far more satisfying. Uh, but I mean, the conference final certainly was fun uh-huh. in its time. And I, I hope to live long enough to see the Kings get back to the conference final someday. Sure. But, but, uh, but yeah, it's, <laughs> my perspective has changed. On that yeah. Well, good, good. It sounds like, <clears throat> You know, as you as you noted earlier, you know the career of a of a journalist. You you're still learning. You're still encountering new things that that hopefully keep the work worth doing. Um, so that's that's awesome. 
I think something that I, I did want to ask before we signed off and we can maybe end with this one is, um, you know, what are some projects or some, you know, it could even be media platforms, anything that you're really excited about nowadays or, or, some, or a project that you're working on now that you're really looking forward to, um, you know, how can folks find, and this is, I guess, a multi-layered question, how can folks find your, your work beyond a subscription to the Sacramento Bee, which is worthwhile, but beyond that, are there any projects you're working on or, or things like that that folks can encounter? So, I, you know, I wrote some nonfiction books in the early 2000s uh, when I had a lot more time on my hands than I do now. Um, and I hope to, I hope to one day return to that. Mm-hmm. The, the last kind of 18 years of my life been, have been consumed by um, getting the, my career as a columnist off the ground and mm-hmm. I'm a father. Yeah. Uh, so, so those two jobs have kept me plenty busy. Uh, but uh, I do think, particularly if you live in the Sacramento region, that subscribing to the Bee um, is not just a, a way to stay informed, uh, in our community, but it's also a way to support journalism mm-hmm. um, when it's more important than ever. And, um, you know, speaking for myself, that uh, I do everything I can every day to, to uh, honor those people who do subscribe and to make it worth their while. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to bring value. We have to tell people things that they don't know. Um, and, and we have to give people a sense of place on their community. Um, and, uh, and sometimes we have to hold people accountable. And uh, um, my hope is that people look to us for that. And that's going to be my focus for as long as I'm sitting in this chair. And I don't know how long that'll be. Uh, I, I hope that when I, when I leave, and I will leave someday, that, that I'm able to do it on my own terms. But in the meantime, uh-huh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make the most of it while I'm here. Well, I think that's an outstanding place to wrap up, wrap up. And on behalf of the Sacramento Historical Society and myself, thank you for the work you're doing, you know, not just on this on this episode, but also the the speaking events you've done with the Historical Society and, and the work you're doing um, from where where we're sitting. It's looking pretty good. So keep up the good work, Marcos. And, and I appreciate the time. Thank you. It's my honor. I, I love the Historical Society and, and um uh, and, I, and it's it's a it's a it's an institution with been in Sacramento for many years, uh, and uh, and I'm I'm proud to even play a little small part of that. Great, awesome. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Sacramento Historical Society's The American Attic. If you'd like to learn more about the society and upcoming speaker series, please visit sachistoricalsociety.org. If you have ideas for topics and speakers we can engage, drop us a line at admin at sachistoricalsociety.org. See you next time.